When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we're we're talking about a topic that Alex and I both enjoy. So I'm going to leave it to her to introduce our guest. So excited. Um, One of the chief curators for Historic Royal Palaces, chief executive of the Heritage Education Trust, author of books and novels galore, including Henry VIII and The Men Who Made Him, and more importantly today, the definitive biography of Thomas Cromwell. Um, It's Tracy Borman. Hello, Tracy. Hello, it's lovely to be with you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're going to be talking about the real Thomas Cromwell and Hilary Mantel's trilogy, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies and the Mirror and the Light. Um, We're going to look at what's historically accurate, what isn't, what the books have done for historians, and talk about some of the things we especially like or don't like. But first of all, how are you? How is lockdown? Well, I'm very well. Do you know what? Today is one of my better days because I thought, you know, I am going to have to get fit because I've basically just been sitting inside for a long time. So I started the day with a bike ride to Hampton Court, which was amazing. I saw on Twitter the photos. I was, I'm so lucky because it's only five miles from my house and it's a lovely ride. And I don't know why I haven't done it before, but I just got this yearning mm. to be back at the palace because, you know, I'm guilty of taking it for granted, you know, working there. But it was just so heartwarming yeah. to see it. And, and physically, it did me really a lot of good as well. And there's such a link, isn't there, to mental well-being. If you actually just yeah. get out and do some physical Just go and look at something beautiful. Absolutely. And it, it set up a treat. We were talking before we started recording about um, the perils of looking after one's parents in this situation. And uh, Alina is uh, ferrying food backwards and forwards for hers. And I was saying that uh, actually, I think the the biggest thing that's getting on my nerves about coronavirus now is Piers Morgan, because essentially I can't stop my mum watching his silly face every morning on Good Morning Britain and getting upset <laughs> about all the waffle that comes out of him. Um, but that's what he's there for, isn't it? He's not. He's he's there to provoke controversy and be scandalous yeah sadly yes sadly yes your mum needs to get more into history i think take refuge in history if in well, doubt there is a fantastic new podcast she could be listening to but she doesn't she watches piers morgan <laughs> instead it's a bone of contention your mum needs to take a leaf out of my parents book because my parents have been listening to this religiously obviously except for when my dad was really ill um but yeah take a leaf yeah, I'd, I would say, yeah, listen, mum, but she's not listening. She's not listening. She's watching John Wayne films and Piers Morgan. Anyway, enough about my mum. 
shame on you mum you know what i think we should uh, we should kick in with quite a bit of a stonker question yeah um let's, let, let, let's let's do it let's do it so what has the wolf hall trilogy given us as historians well, I think it's given us a huge amount because um, there's a lot of snobbery out there among historians about historical fiction. Um, I have to say it's not a snobbery I share because I absolutely love historical fiction. But um, it's seen as as quite damaging sometimes because it, it gives false impressions of what really happened. But I've always said if it's well-researched, it gets people into history. It's a good thing. And that's absolutely the case, of course, with Hilary Mantel's trilogy and what I think that's particularly given as well as kind of recruiting a whole army of Cromwell fans from people who probably haven't heard of him what that's given us is a reappraisal because it's inspired historians to relook at Cromwell and I count myself among them it was because of reading Wolf Hall that I was actually inspired to find out the real Cromwell and embarked upon my biography so thank goodness for Hilary Mantel I say yeah and she certainly has um, made everybody sort of sit up and take notice of a, a historical character very significant historical character in terms of especially uh, church history in England um that we hadn't really been paying attention to uh, from a literary perspective putting aside your historian hat what do you really like about the trilogy personally uh, well I think it really evokes the time um I, I particularly like in the third book this comes across very strongly uh, the humor and you don't necessarily expect that particularly for the third and final installment which is basically Cromwell's downfall spoiler alert um, <laughs> yeah if you didn't know that was coming we can't help yeah. you yeah. <laughs> it's actually very very funny um she's got an amazing turn of phrase and i think that's very true to cromwell himself who was renowned for his irreverent humor he even made his enemies laugh they couldn't help it so i think that's one of the things that appealed most to me i can't claim that i got into wolf hall easily from the very beginning um a friend recommended it to me seems an awfully long time ago now and i really struggled to get into it um but once I did, I was just hooked and I found the second two actually an easier read. I think, yeah, I mean, we, we'll come back to that later because I absolutely agree. My favourite, I think I love the artful decline of Norris, Weston, Brereton and George Boleyn, how she did that. Smeaton less so because he obviously there were. So what happens if you haven't read Bring Up the Bodies is um, Cromwell has seen this uh, mockery of Thomas Wolsey, um, his old master, carried out by these four men. And essentially what they do is carry an actor playing him to hell. Um, and each one has a limb as they're doing this. And then one by one in Bring Up the Bodies, he takes down left front paw, right front paw, uh, left hind leg. He does, he does it like that and he's ticking them off a list and that's how she interpreted their decline. Um, Smeaton less so because I think she just said, well, he's, he's kind of annoyed Cromwell and he's a bit irritating and bitchy. Um, but the allegorical tie-in with the performance, that I thought that was really artistic. I absolutely agree. It's so clever and actually it's such a good theory. Um, I mean, it's no coincidence that all those accused with Anne Boleyn were in some way, Mark Smeaton accepted perhaps, enemies of Cromwell and also enemies of Wolsey. So it's a kind of neat way for him to get rid of them as well as bringing down the Queen. And yeah, just what, so I, as I was reading it, so then, so, and what it does is one by one, he goes to interview them um, in the tower and basically nail them um, for these accusations, which we'll move on to in a bit. Um, 
but then all of a sudden at the end of the paragraph it, it just says uh, it, so he sort of says farewell to each one of them as he leaves having completely railroaded them and it just says left front poor and you're like yes like that as you're going through <laughs> so if we're going to reverse this completely as Thomas Cromwell's biographer what really annoys you <laughs> okay so Cromwell is made a bit too whiter than white uh, by Hilary Mantel of course if, if you're a novelist you need a good hero that's what he is but he wasn't quite as one-dimensional as that I think uh, Hilary Mantel takes away some of the ruthlessness that he really did have now he was operating in a ruthless world absolutely fair enough but he could be a pretty nasty piece of work when he needed to and and particularly with regard to bringing Anne Boleyn down, which he sort of handled quite subtly. Wolf Hall, you're left with questions as to how much is this Cromwell's doing? How much is it Henry VIII's? In reality, I think the lion's share of the blame for Anne Boleyn's execution should go to Cromwell. Now, so much as I ended up really liking him and his character, I really couldn't forgive him that. Yeah, that is... is one thing it comes across that sort of Henry's prodded him in that direction where my own interpretation of it has always been um, that Henry would have quite liked a new wife and had his eyes on Jane Seymour and things were getting a bit tedious with Anne and Cromwell just took it out of his hands and went right well problem solved that's how I see it um, I, if anything I don't like about them it's exactly what we've said already is that Wolf Hall took a lot of getting into I thought the style was tweaked slightly to make it much more readable I think I don't think I, I just say it's tweaked but it, it's not actually that subtle because if you pick up bring up the bodies and just dive in with the decline of Anne Boleyn it's so much easier to read but you really should stick with Wolf Hall shouldn't you because once you do get into yeah. it you can't put it down yeah, I could not agree more um, because with Wolf Hall, I think the main criticism was that Hilary Mantel kept saying he and not saying who she meant by he. And you had to keep reading back and it took me forever. I almost gave up. I got so frustrated. And that has definitely been amended for the, the next two books. And um, in the third one, it's the clearest yet because constantly she's saying he, Cromwell, he, Cromwell, you know. Yeah. And so, exactly. <laughs> um, so clearly she has responded to reader feedback. Talk to us about um, Wolsey. How accurate is the relationship that's portrayed with him? Because it's almost devotion in the novels. And I think that is pretty accurate, actually. Um, A quality that we don't often see with Cromwell or that hasn't traditionally been represented is his loyalty. He was intensely loyal to those he loved. And there is no doubt that he loved uh, his big patron, Thomas Wolsey, uh, Cardinal Wolsey. And so I do think that's really well drawn by Hilary Mantel it it absolutely comes across and there's only one recorded instance in the sources of Cromwell weeping and he's found weeping uh, when Wolsey falls from power when it looks like his life is in danger and before he kind of you know gathers um, himself Cromwell is actually found at this moment of weakness and I think it does show just how much uh, he was devoted to Wolsey but his actions show that more so is that accurate as well the the uh, the way the manner in which in Wolf Hall he sticks by him for as long as possible absolutely he was pretty much the only one who did talk about rats and sinking ships everybody else um, bar perhaps George Cavendish uh, Wolsey's faithful servant they all deserted and and went to serve Cromwell uh, Wolsey's enemies but Cromwell 
was pretty much, you know, the only one. And he didn't just kind of say he was loyal. He acted it. He tried desperately to get Henry to pardon Wolsey. I think thanks to Cromwell, Wolsey's life was saved, albeit not for long, because of course he died a natural death a year after his fall. But I think he would have died a much more violent death if it hadn't been for Cromwell's efforts. And I want to know a bit more about Cromwell and his own views of religion. And how accurate is the portrayal in the book? Yeah, um, I think Cromwell was very much a genuine reformer. Uh, He believed um, in the reformist ideas that were coming in from the continent. He didn't just use them for his own political ends and to make the king a rich king by dissolving the monasteries. Of course, that was a, a useful benefit. But you can tell that Cromwell was real in his beliefs because he took huge risks for them. He had friends uh, who would probably have got him into trouble, friends among the reformist circles, quite radical men. He kept books in his library at Austin Friars that would have had him hauled before the courts for heresy. And I think a really telling fact is that Cromwell actually paid out of his own pocket for the Bible to be translated into English because he so believed the importance of getting God's word out to the ordinary people. So it's uh, this is one of the things that I guess makes me the most cross um, when you see historians saying oh you know he's just cynical using religion for his own political ends it was so much more than that for Cromwell. Um, I, I have to stick with religion I will tell anyone this that will listen and I've said it twice on this uh, this podcast already I've never ever ever been a fan of Thomas More. there's just too much about him that is grossly hypocritical and I suppose sanctimonious so I didn't have a problem with the way Mantell chose to represent him because um, he's almost a villain um, and a mocked villain as well uh, it wasn't traditional at all was it this um, portrayal of him and what's the truth so far as we can ascertain well good for you because um, <laughs> there are many people actually who have actually had the, the, the um, insight in the same way because of course we're all beguiled by the likes of man for all seasons and what a great hero, how principled he was but actually when researching Henry VIII and the men who made him as well as Cromwell, uh, the Cromwell biography, it really struck me actually he kind of doesn't deserve that saintly reputation, no. he was critical and he fought blumming hard to get himself out of trouble it's not just that he willingly became a martyr as is often portrayed he tried every trick in the book to get himself out of trouble but the one thing he of course refused to do and you have to admire him for this he refused to take the oath of supremacy but believe me he tried literally everything else and he did some grim things to people as well didn't he Absolutely. The torture of heretics being a particularly grim example. I mean, absolutely. He did not flinch from using sort of awful, horrible devices to uh, to wring confessions out of people, to try and make people uh, stick to the true path as he saw it. Um, he wasn't particularly nice to some members of his family. I don't think his treatment of his wife was all that. Oh, no, he's admirable. awful to her. And that's in the books as well, because I was like, yes, she's got that in there. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot not to admire, I'm afraid, about Thomas More. Now, whether he deserves to be such a villain as he comes across in Wolf Hall, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a bit annoying to kind of say, well, it's probably a mix of the two. But I do think Hilary Mantel's Thomas More is closer to the truth. 
Yeah, I think what's why I don't mind him being so awful in the book and hating him so much is because there's been so much that's unbalanced the other way. I like to think that we're doing that. She's just drawn us back somewhere towards the middle. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And how she imagined Cromwell's childhood and early life. Mm, that's right, because in fact, we don't know very much at all. In fact, pretty much nothing of Cromwell's childhood. We know he was probably born in Putney, you know, son of a blacksmith and general ne'er-do-well, Walter Cromwell. He was in trouble with the law so many times. So Mantell opens the trilogy with, with this brutal scene of Cromwell's father giving him a good beating. We don't know what their relationship was. But I think Mantell was right to infer that Walter Cromwell was a really um, kind of villainous character. So, you know, you can forgive her for inferring that their relationship wasn't easy. But the fact is, we don't know. We know he probably went traveling on the continent. He probably escaped home at an early age. Um, he turns up in Florence, but that's according to an Italian novel who places him there. And so, there's so much that's unknowable about Cromwell's early life because he was a nobody. He was born a nobody. So nobody is writing about him because he is merely the son of a blacksmith. So why would anybody write about him? So that's why we have to infer a lot. We go from the occasional reference that Cromwell later made to him being a ruffian in his youth, for example. But really, there's very little to go. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I mean, you could, the size of the first and the third books, you can knock someone out with them. They are hefty. And a large <laughs> proportion of, um, especially Wolf Hall, uh, does sort of reimagine his... Um, his earlier life and it talks about um there's just anecdotes that she chucks in there sort of about his life when he was in the counting houses in italy and then when he was a soldier and that she's obviously put a lot of thought into imagining um an, an earlier life for thomas cromwell and i think that that's really where she got to let her imagination run right and it's almost as if she looked for ways um because she obviously he was born a nobody but she, i think she's quite used quite a, an admirable amount of imagination to think about how he got from being this absolute nobody to being qualified to do what he ends up doing. Do you agree? 
I completely agree. And I think Hilary Mantel's genius actually is um, just picking up the occasional thread that we do have and weaving in this really rich tapestry as she does in her narrative. And she has, as you say, let her imagination uh, go a little bit wild in the first book because there is little to go on. But what little there is, she uses. And I think she uses brilliantly and she makes very educated guesses based on that evidence. I mean, this is a woman who has clearly lived and breathed Cromwell and his world for many, many years. I, um, I've met Hilary Mantel a couple of times and on both occasions I've just struck by her dedication to her craft, both as a writer, but actually as a historian too. I mean, we've, we've waited a bloody long time for this third book. Um, and it was originally due out in 2017, wasn't it? And she's not been shy in just saying, well, it took this long because it was hard. I mean, and as yeah. someone who's not, not an expert by any means with the original Tudor source material, my exposure to it's been very limited. I still, I look, I read them and I think she got that from there. She got that from there. I can see a sort of almost a layman, um, how in depth she's gone with the research and what she's been looking at and the fact that she hasn't just sort of taken the easy way out she has tried to make it i think as historically accurate as possible whilst crafting a novel which i think uh, she didn't have to do that she could have just used a lot more poetic license i couldn't agree more and and there is a sort of scale of this uh, among historical novelists some just take the very bare bones and then make all sorts of things up to sit, suit their plot others and i would count not just hilary mantel but the likes of alison weir amongst this fraternity or um whatever the collective noun for novelists is yeah. um, they they are based much more closely um, on the available evidence they're much more faithful to it and I think their books are richer for it because uh, particularly with Cromwell you couldn't make it up there's there's plenty of drama in his life and so you don't need to embellish that much to have great drama um I do have to ask before we move on I am not at the end of the mirror and the light yet and I'm I'm dreading it because I have grown to like him quite a lot how graphic is it because obviously the axeman was supposedly drunk right and took mm -hmm. a good three or four attempts to get his head off that's right the theory is that uh, the Duke of Norfolk Cromwell's nemesis really oh, uh, that's another had... scab in human history oh, isn't it can't bear. <laughs> can't bear Norfolk I like the really... villainy of him oh I've tried to keep an open mind but really yeah uh, a nasty piece of work but it's said that Norfolk had this final piece of revenge in store for Cromwell by either bribing the executioner or getting him drunk and that's why it takes about three blows um, of the axe to finally sever Cromwell's head well you know I don't want to spoil it for anybody listening but it is you know suffice it to say it does paint quite a vivid picture and it's so moving you're absolutely with Cromwell and and perhaps you've been with him for all three books but even just through this book you're really rooting for him and I found myself even in the final few pages thinking well may maybe he'll be saved maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> she changed the ending yes. I, I so it's, it's devastating it is devastating she does it so so well do you know what that was something that they actually did quite well uh, there were elements of it that were utterly ridiculous but it's another one of those things that brought 
Tudor history to live people, the Tudors. Um, that was horrific to watch the Cromwell execution in that. But also oh. as well, do you know what else they nailed was the snivelling bastardry of Anne Boleyn's father as well, who I yes. think is possibly worse than the Duke. They both sold her out and they both <laughs> yes. used those girls to their utmost benefit for themselves and then ran away. But I think for me, um, Wiltshire just about tips the balance over yeah. uh, Norfolk because he is their, their parent. He's their father and he basically gets off. And Yeah. <laughs> just... I mean, it's, it's astonishing. No such thing as family loyalty, even to your own children. He's a despicable character. Yeah, and I, mean, I think I the, the snivellingness of him was caught brilliantly in the Tudors when he leaves yeah. the tower and he gets let out and both of his kids have been beheaded and yes. uh, he just sort of scurries away like the rat that he is. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And the Tudors, I mean, they get a hard press, that that uh, that particular portrayal, that, that whole series. But, um, you know, I kind of loved it. I'm sorry if it's a guilty pleasure, but I just think there was actually quite a lot that they got right okay Henry didn't look right and he never aged and all of his wives looked like supermodels but if you can't get past that I think they nailed quite a lot of the history yeah you can again you can see the use of the source material you can also see where they thought well that doesn't work get rid of that but yeah. you can also yeah, see it was that, annoying that they changed yeah. the name you know Margaret to Mary and all the other oh they just around. merged Mary two daughters to uh, two sisters together yes. didn't they yeah yes but and it's it was like look People can cope with the fact that there are a lot of Marys. You don't have to do that. You know? <laughs> but the thing is, as well, it's uh, just the fact that Henry Cavill's in it was enough for me. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah. that's good for me. Yeah, absolutely. He, he did quite well, I think, doing the whole uh, Duke of Suffolk not really embracing the uh, Reformation. Yes. He did that quite well. But I as, thought he did that very well. But then it was kind of the last series when they were supposed to be old men and they were talking like they were old men and they were still in their 20s and they'd sort of <laughs> done a couple of grey streaks of hair and some padding to make Jonathan Rhys Myers look a bit fatter. But other than that, they, they really still looked like they were in their 20s. They did. And that's, I'm afraid that's the major failing of it. And that's why it's, it's been subject to ridicule because nobody ever got any less good looking or any older. <laughs> um, and it's such a shame because, as I say, it, it takes away from the admiral aspects of that series I really enjoyed um, the girl who played Catherine Howard and how frivolous she really was yes um, and absolutely I, I really love that series I mean don't get me wrong I sit on my own time period and criticize and yell at the TV all the time but it made a it made a, a complete like change for me it was great I got to sit there and watch it and actually do you know what that is what I'm gonna watch tonight so and they, they quite accurate accurately um showed you that sort of Anne was set up but that Catherine Howard actually if any of his wives was a bit of a slut that was yeah, the culprit was yeah yeah but um what did she you've already mentioned um Hilary Mantel and the sense of humor but what else did she nail what were you reading in the trilogy where you just thought yes that's him she's got him <laughs> Yeah, the, so absolutely. The, his his loyalty, his humour um, stand out before anything else. But I think as well, just the factual details. And I think particularly with the third novel, the various disparate threads um, that on their own wouldn't have been enough to bring him down. But she cleverly weaves them together so you can see how gradually uh, his downfall unfolded and I'm thinking particularly of his relationship with Princess Mary or the Lady Mary Henry's mm. um, first eldest daughter um, 
And with this, um, she quite rightly portrays their relationship. I think it's quite complex because in theory, Mary should have hated Cromwell. He, you know, he got rid of her mother, Catherine of Aragon, effectively by championing Anne Boleyn and the annulment. But in fact, um, Cromwell and she had this interesting relationship. They were almost allies and so much so that it was rumoured that Cromwell was hoping to marry Mary. Now, of course, I think that was ridiculous, but that's a theme that Mantel definitely develops and uh, and weaves in and you can see how this and Mantel herself clearly you know she's portraying it as ridiculous as a rumor but you know she she really gets across how rumor pretty much was enough in these days rumor was enough to bring down Anne Boleyn and in the end it was enough to bring down Cromwell too. What do you think of the portrayal of Jane Seymour? I liked her from the very beginning in Wolf Hall Yes. Was she was she a good girl like that? Was was she as I like as well the way she uh, as soon as uh, in bring up the bodies it becomes clear that sort of she's a queen in waiting. She starts to grow as a person. But I I thought it was a fantastic portrayal. I think it's a really good portrayal. I think uh, a very believable one. Um, we actually don't know much about Jane Seymour at all. She she appears quite mild and placid. Just simply, she doesn't have much to say for herself. Certainly, uh, in contrast to Anne Boleyn. But I, I I liked her a lot in Wolf Hall in in real life, so to speak. I'm not so sure. I think she did absolutely um, stand a lot on ceremony. She was seen by some to be quite haughty and proud. Um, She insisted that all due dignity was was shown um, towards her, which I suppose, you know, fair play, she was queen. Um, But I think in Wolf Hall, Mantell draws her brilliantly. And you do like her, her naivety comes across, but also, you know, she's she's not as stupid as she looks in Wolf Hall, is she? No, I think as a novelist as well, what she was trying to do was highlight the absolute um, opposite ends of the spectrum occupied by Anne Boleyn, who who is fully fully capable of speaking for herself and and butting her head into things that Henry doesn't think she has any business in, um, and Jane, who was the antithesis of her almost. Yeah, exactly. It's like Cromwell, um, uh, actually in in Wolf Hall, I think, I can't remember whose mouth these words are put into, but um, about, you know, Anne Boleyn being the vicious old hack and Henry now has a nice new horse to ride. And that kind of contrast between Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour is drawn really, really well. I think in Wolf Hall, you have the, the kind of feisty wife who ends up just annoying Henry and then uh, the much more meek and mild on the surface, uh, Jane mm. Seymour. Thank you so much for talking to us about Wolf Hall. I could have this conversation all day. I could literally go through it page by page with you, but I suspect that even in lockdown, we've got better things to do. Um, <laughs> but it's brilliant. And I think I just... I. She doesn't care. She doesn't know I exist. But uh, congratulations due to Hilary Mantel for a fantastic oh, trilogy. Me too. Yeah, I mean, they're I being think... touted as the best literature of the 21st century so far. Um, I don't know if I agree in so far as Wolf Hall, but certainly as a trilogy and as a project yeah. and as a body of work, amazing. And I think she deserves a third Booker Prize, in my opinion. I think it's amazing. Yeah, definitely. I'm now sold and I will be reading this weekend. Thank you very much, ladies, for that. But Tracy, you've got a new book out this year, haven't you? I've got a new novel out. So my own trilogy um, uh, is about the uh, the years 
uh, following the gunpowder plot. Well, the first one leads up to the gunpowder plot and it's called the King's Witch Trilogy. But this third and final novel, which um, so far is still coming out in June, is called The Fallen Angel. And uh, the the sort of main character of the piece and actually the main villain of the piece is James I's great favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. So it was really fascinating, actually, just to leave the Tudors behind for a while and to explore the early Stuarts in this fiction trilogy. So that's out this June. Um, but I think I need to end with something Tudor. And what I would Definitely. like to end with, we've mentioned her quite a few times. Uh, oh, yes. That's amazing lady, Anne Boleyn. And on the 19th of May, if all goes to plan, my new series on the downfall of Anne Boleyn will be broadcast. On, in the UK, it's on Channel 5. Um, I'm not sure which other channels uh, worldwide it will be available on yet or whether you can view it online. I will certainly be tweeting details, but it's called The Fall of Anne Boleyn. And it looks at three critical days from her arrest to her execution. And it really gave me so many new insights. And and I don't often say that about TV, um, but it was based on such painstaking research. And really, there was, for me, some complete revelations. So maybe we should have another chat about that sometime. (laughs) Definitely. If we're still in lockdown on the 19th of May, will you come on and do, uh, we will give that day to Anne Boleyn if you want to come on and talk oh. about the downfall of Anne Boleyn. Um, Please, I promise amazing. you it's I yours. Would be delighted. Yeah, but yeah. well done seeking out another historical git bag and going for the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> He's, God, that is the way to describe him, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely talking to you both. Cool. And thank I, you. I have no doubt we'll still be going on the nineteenth of May because there's no end in sight. So we'll talk to you again then, and we <laughs> will cover those three days in the life of Anne Boleyn and how it all grimly came to an end. I'll probably slag off her dad and her uncle quite a bit more. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. That's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Thanks very much, Tracy. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.